turn once again this morning to our study of Matthew 24. It's a wonderful thing to be able to study the prophetic Word of God when we have an opportunity to get a glimpse into the consummation of all things. And we have an opportunity to gaze, as it were, at the glory and the majesty and the excellency of Christ Jesus, our coming Savior. This morning we will be looking at verses 9 through 14. Why don't I read that for you so that we get a running start here. In fact, what I think we'll do is come back to verse 3 and read down through verse 14. And as he, referring to Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Before we look very carefully at these passages of Scripture that are so important. May I say that I appreciate your willingness to allow me to get a bit technical at times. I fear that in many cases Christians have become victims of our society that seems to have a relentless desire to dumb down everything. And I don't want to dumb down the truth of the Word of God. And so I appreciate you bearing with me because sometimes, even as today, passages require great detail and a lot of thinking. And the wonderful thing about that is that our faith is strengthened when the more we know. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? Hearing by the Word of God. So I appreciate your willingness to bear with me, and I will ask you to do that even again today. And in light of that, we want to begin with a question that some of our listeners have asked me over the email and even a few within the church here. And that is, Dr. Harrell, are you a dispensationalist? And a lot of people hear a term like that and they think, my, my word, what is that? Is that some kind of a disease? Well, no. In fact, I would be called a dispensationalist, and maybe you would be too. 
But let me explain this very briefly so that you understand this term that is used primarily in theological circles. When you look at the word of God, you see that in his eternal purposes to glorify himself, God administers his rule over his creation in different ways, in different eras. A dispensation is merely an administration of that rule. And while some dispensationalists have a rather elaborate system that labels various eras of redemptive history based on nuances and inferences, I would like to say that a dispensation is merely a term referring to the varying administrations in the outworking of God's divine plan. The way God worked in the Old Testament is very different than the way he works today. The way that God worked with the nation Israel is very different than the way that he's working with the church today. Someday when he comes to rule and reign upon the earth during the millennial kingdom, there will be a very different way that he functions, shall we say. Now, dispensationalism, therefore, is merely a system of biblical interpretation that interprets and applies the Word of God in a normal, literal way, including the prophetic literature, and therefore takes into account the differing ways that God rules within a given era. And therefore, that method of interpretation would see a distinction between God's program for Israel in God's program for the church, even though there are many overlapping theological concepts. For example, his plan of redemption remains the same. All through the word of God, we see that. It's always by grace through faith. But the way he administers his plan differs from one dispensation to another. For example, Israel was God's unique focus of redemption in one dispensation, while the church, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, has been his focus since the Jews rejected Jesus, especially since Pentecost. And ultimately, we're going to see that when God returns again, he, or actually right before he returns, during Daniel's 70th week, that time of tribulation, I believe that his focus will once again return to Israel, in particular, And especially during his millennial reign. And the prophetic literature is filled with the, I believe, the the pivotal role that the nation of Israel, the Jew, plays during that time. John MacArthur says, and I quote, Dispensationalism teaches that all God's remaining covenant promises to Israel will be literally fulfilled including the promises of earthly blessings and an earthly messianic kingdom. God promised Israel, for example, that they would possess the promised land forever in Genesis 13 and in Exodus 32. Scripture declares that Messiah will rule over the kingdoms of the earth from Jerusalem. We read that in Zechariah 14, 9 through 11. The Old Testament prophecy, he goes on to say, says that all Israel will one day be restored to the promised land. Amos 9, 14 through 15. And the temple will be rebuilt in Exodus or in Ezekiel 37. And the people of Israel will be redeemed, according to Jeremiah 23, 6 and Romans 11, 26 through 27. 
Therefore, he says in conclusion, dispensationalists believe all those promised blessings will come to pass as literally as did the promised curses, end quote. So having addressed the implications of that crucial system of biblical interpretation, we return to Jesus' greatest prophetic discourse in Matthew 24, and we will obviously apply this same method of interpretation to this passage of Scripture. And again, at the end of verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us, when will all these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And may I remind you that in verses 4 through 14, he describes six very specific signs. They're called birth pangs in verse 8. These are things that will occur just before his appearing. What are they? Six of them. First of all, the first sign is that there will be false messiahs in verses 4 through 5. In verses 6 through the first part of verse 7, there will be nations at war. In verses the end of verse 7 through verse 8, there will be natural disasters of epic proportions. Verse 9, persecution of tribulation saints. And in verses 10 through 13, this, this, the fifth sign will be the defection and betrayal by false believers. And finally, sixthly, in verse 14, we will see mass evangelism. Well, we've looked at the first three, so this morning we will look at the last three which would be, beginning with number four, the persecution of tribulation saints. Notice verse nine. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. This fourth birth pain will be really the inevitable consequence of the first three. Because people know that they are enduring the wrath of the Lamb, according to Revelation 6.17. And obviously the people during that time are going to hate anybody that worships this Lamb that is causing all of this suffering upon the world. And in this verse, Jesus tells us that three things are going to be happened to the people of that day, the saints of that day. First of all, they're going to be delivered to tribulation. Delivered in the original language, paradidomai, as the, it gives us the, the idea of someone being arrested by authorities and being handed over even to an executioner. That's how the term was used. So people are going to be delivered to tribulation. They're also going to be killed, he tells us, and they're going to be hated by all nations on account of my name. Now, down through redemptive history, saints have always been persecuted. But, friends, never to this extent. The severity and the scope of these persecutions is far exceeds anything that the world has ever seen. As human suffering intensifies under the mighty hand of God, so too will the attacks upon his people. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians 6:17 that he bore, quote, the brand marks of Jesus in his body. And likewise, all who worship Christ have and will suffer for his sake. And the wounds and the scars that the saints bear are ultimately meant for the one that we and they someday will serve. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting. In Mark's gospel, in Mark 13, verse 9, Jesus 
is quoted to say this. They will deliver you to the to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now, most likely the courts here would be a reference to the Gentile authorities and the synagogues to the Jewish authorities. But friends, I would submit to you that we're, we already see the stage set for these kinds of persecutions even today. Especially as we look at the worldwide escalation of hatred towards Christians. Now, I'm not when I speak of Christians, I'm not referring to apostate religious systems such as Roman Catholicism or even some of the neo-evangelical prosperity cult, seeker sensitive megachurch, fad-driven type of things that are out there. Most of those organizations are kind of pseudo-Christian, religiously and politically correct, but for the most part are not genuine Christians. What I'm talking about here is the persecution that we see today and that will escalate during the time of the tribulation of Bible-believing Christians. To add a little bit more to it, those who believe in a six-day creation and that God is the creator, the sustainer, and consummator of all things. And that there is only one God who exists in three persons, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that there is salvation in no other name other than the Lord Jesus Christ and that his word is infallible and so on and so forth. Frankly, some of the things that I just said are outlawed in many nations around the world today. It is estimated that more Christians have died for their faith in the 20th century than any other time in history. Global reports indicate that over 150,000 Christians were martyred just last year around the world. Chiefly outside the United States, of course. One organization that watches these things, Open Doors International, has a list, a ranking of nations. Let me give you the top ten which would be, in my mind, a preview of coming attractions. The top ten of the nations that are most hostile towards Christianity, they are in this order. North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Laos, Iran, Maldives, Somalia, Bhutan, China, and Afghanistan. It's interesting that Islam is the majority religion in five of the top ten countries. And as you look at the rest of the list, they are the majority of those nations. Four countries of that list have communist governments, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, and China. Bhutan is the only Buddhist country in the top ten list. And then, of course, the others, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Maldives, Somalia, and Afghanistan, are Muslim. And one of the articles that I read about North Korea They state the following, and I quote, The Stalinist country of North Korea is characterized by a complete lack of religious freedom and of many other human rights. For the third year in a row, North Korea heads the ranking as the the worst violator of religious rights. Christianity is observed as one of the greatest threats to the regime's power. Isn't that interesting? The government will arrest not only the suspected dissident, but also three generations of his family to root out the bad influence. It is believed that tens of thousands of Christians are currently suffering in North Korean prison camps where they are faced with cruel abuses. North Korea is suspected to detain more political and religious prisoners than any other country in the world, end quote. Saudi Arabia is second on the list 
supposedly one of our allies. And here's what an article says about them. Saudi Arabia is high on the top ten of the world watch list because religious freedom does not exist in the Wahhabist kingdom. Its citizens are not allowed to adhere to any other religion than Islam. The legal system is based on Islamic law, the Sharia, and they say apostasy, which in their definition is conversion to any other religion, is punishable by death. Christians and other non-Muslims are prohibited from even gathering for public worship. And on and on it goes. And frankly, with Islam's determination to gain world domination, which has been historically their goal. If you read anything about their history and you read anything in the Koran, you will see that. With that as their determination, these things will only escalate. Well, friends, even in the United States, we see persecution beginning to mount. And frankly, this is a pattern that many notice as one that, that, that is reminiscent of Jewish persecution in post-war Germany, where as you study, you will see that the people were first mocked and ridiculed, and then discrimination against a certain group of people, namely the Jews in that day, was kind of socially acceptable, even as it is today to bash Christians in our country. And then the prejudice turns to popular hatred. The propaganda machine gets cranked up more and more, and finally, it results in outright persecution. Virtually anything today that is rooted in basic Christian beliefs is now considered ridiculous at best and a hate crime at worst. You see this especially in the relentless attack on Christianity from organizations like the ACLU. If you don't believe me, you just get on television or any place, especially in a public school, or a college or a university, and you speak out concerning your belief in a creator God, and you see the reaction. You speak out that Jesus is the only way, and you'll be branded as an intolerant bigot. You speak out and tell people that the Bible is the infallible, inspired record revealed by God, and people will think it's utter foolishness and you're some knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that needs to live in a cave. You tell people that you believe abortion is morally wrong, and you will find that instantly that will incite almost a murderous rage in the opponents. All you have to do is look at the Judge Alito hearings of late, and you will see that played out over and over. You speak out against uh, something like homosexuality, you'll see the same response. Friends, our colleges and universities and even seminary campuses, you go to the seminary down here at Vanderbilt and you will see that what we would teach here in this church and many other Bible-believing churches is not only considered utter folly, but considered dangerous to society. And all of this grows with every graduating class. One article I read said, and I quote, the entertainment industry and syndicated media increasingly vilifies Christians as sewer rats, vultures, and simple-minded social ingrates. goes on to say the FBI and the Clinton White House branded fundamentalist Christian groups as hate mongers and potential terrorists. 
The Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago warns that plans by Southern Baptists to hold a convention in the Windy City next year might foment, quote, hate crimes, end quote, against minorities, causing some Christians to fear that speaking openly about their religious beliefs will soon be considered a crime. All this while Christianity itself is often a target of hate crime violence. End quote. Well, friends, I just give you this as a sample, and I'm sure you're, you're very aware if you know anything that's going on in our culture today. But this is nothing to be compared with what will come. In Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, actually through verse 11, we read there of Christ breaking the fifth seal of the scroll. Uh, and by the way, these, again, parallel Jesus' signs here in Matthew 24 especially the one in verse 9 that we're looking at. And there we read of the prayers of those that, are, that will be martyred during the time of the tribulation, prayers of divine vengeance. And here's what we read there in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. The Holy Spirit gives us a sense of the magnitude of the saints that will be killed during this time. We read about this in Revelation 7, uh, verses 9 and 10. And there John sees a multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then, as we go on and we read, one of the elders representing the raptured church reveals the identity of those who were slain. And in verse 14, we read, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, I want to digress for a moment. Some will ask, well, wait a minute, if the church has been raptured, as I believe it will be, where do these saints come from? Well, the answer will be that they will be saints who trust in Christ after the rapture during the tribulation. And I'll speak more of that in a moment. But first of all, we have to, to, to assume that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. And as I've said before, there are those that I love and respect that don't agree with my position. But I think it's fair to you for me to explain why I believe that to be the case. Why do I believe that the church will be translated before the tribulation and not during it or at the end of it or whatever. Well, let me give you a, a brief list here. I'll get a bit technical for a moment. Um, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list. There will be other things that will come up from time to time in our study. But my first reason is I believe that only a pre-tribulational rapture 
preserves the New Testament doctrine of imminency, that the Lord could come at any time. And I believe, again, this is a doctrine that is essential to a proper understanding of sanctification and, and not to mention the comfort that the Apostle Paul gave those in Thessalonica. I've already covered that before in part one of this series, so if you want more about that, you can listen to that tape. But secondly, I believe, dear friends, that there are specific promises in the Word of God that tells us that the church will not be exposed to this time of divine judgment. If you'd like to, look at Revelation 3.10. In Revelation 3.10, we read, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. By the way, that literally could be translated the inhabited earth. That hour that, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, I understand that this is a promise to one of the seven churches in Asia Minor, Asia, Asia Minor, the ecclesia or the called out ones specifically of the church of Philadelphia. But dear friends, as we look at the seven churches, I believe that each church represents a unique type of church that has existed perennially throughout the church age. And I believe that what is spoken here is relevant to all churches, not just the church at Philadelphia. And I would substantiate that by the general call to all churches in chapter 3, verse 13, where he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, back to Revelation 3.10. What must we hear from his word to Philadelphia and therefore to all of us? Well, that we're going to be kept from that hour. Literally, the hour. And the context here in Revelation is that hour of divine judgment described in Revelation 6 through 19. And by the way, that's designated specifically in chapter 14, verse 7, as the hour of his judgment. The word is kept. You Greek students would understand that. Tereso ek. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Again, to be technical here, he did not use the preposition in which would mean in the trial, or dia, I will keep you through the trial. He didn't, he didn't use either of those prepositions in the genitive case. If he had, then that would clearly indicate that there would be a preservation through or in the midst of the trial. But he did not use that. That would make no sense, by the way, in my mind, to say that, well, the saints are going to go through the tribulation, but they're going to be specially protected. Well, why be why be preserved from the consequences of these catastrophic judgments and still die a martyr's death as many of them will do? That makes no sense to me. Moreover, I find it interesting that Jesus used a similar phrase in John 12, 27. Um, the phrase in Greek, sodzon me ektes oris tautos, which says, save me from this hour. It's the same phrase that is used in Revelation 3.10. Jesus was saying, save me from the hour of my crucifixion. Deliver me out of it. Exempt me from the agony of the suffering. He wasn't saying, help me to survive somehow without consequence as I go through this time of suffering. That's not what he was saying. And so again, the argument that the church will endure the pre-kingdom judgments by some kind of miraculous Intervention simply does not stand the test 
of Revelation 3.10 or other passages that I see. Now, there are also other texts that support our deliverance out of that hour. The Lord himself promised in John 5.24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And also in John 14, Jesus speaks of going and preparing a place for us, and he is in keeping here with Jewish marriage traditions where the groom would go and prepare a place for his bride, and then he would come unannounced to receive his bride. And I believe Jesus is speaking of coming for his bride, the church, describing the rapture, which, by the way, is clearly presented in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But there Jesus says in John 14, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now think of this. Jesus is in essence saying, I have paid the dowry. I have bought you with my very blood. I love you with an everlasting love. I've gone to prepare a place for you. Now catch this. And even though I have said to you in John 5:24 that you will not come into judgment, but you pass out of death into life. Bride, what I want you to understand is that before I come to you and take you into myself as my beloved bride, I want you to suffer the birth pangs of my wrath for a period of time and even die a martyr's death. That makes no sense to me. The birth pangs, again, always in the Old Testament, were used to describe a time of divine wrath, a time of divine judgment. But no, I don't believe there's anything in John 14, 2 through 3, that speaks of Christ coming in judgment, of him coming in power and great glory to somehow destroy the wicked. Instead, dear friends, I believe he's coming to snatch away his bride, to take away his church, to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, to where we receive our rewards, and, and then the glorified church will return with him at his second coming as he establishes his kingdom. In Romans 5, verse 9, it says, We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, those were to be words of comfort to Thessalonian believers who thought that they had missed the rapture and now they were in the time of divine judgment. And again, I understand the church has and the church will suffer persecution. We, we, we live in a satanic system here. In fact, in 1 John 5.19, we read that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's the prince in the power of the air. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation, even the saints, we groan inwardly. We're waiting to be snatched away from this place. And so we are going to suffer, but not from the hand of God in the sense of his divine wrath. And beloved, as I think about the church, this is his, this is his very body. This is the, we are the body of the messianic king. And there's nothing that can be more intimate than the body. We are joint heirs with Christ. We've been destined to reign with Him. 
He has given us the, the enormous and the lofty privilege of, of authority in the kingdom, represented by the fact that we are, according to Matthew 16, 19, given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And again, people will say, and I understand this, yes, but the church has always suffered persecution. Why can't they do it then as well? Well, that's true. But friends, I would argue that there is nothing that has ever happened in the history of the world comparable to the suffering that will occur in this great day of divine wrath. Now, again, think about it. Word of God tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way. He's going to be he's going to step aside, as it were. And then the beast that comes up out of the abyss, according to Revelation eleven seven, will make war with them, overcoming them and killing them. That's never happened before in the history of the world. This will be a time when the Antichrist will be given unprecedented power, according to Revelation thirteen seven. It will be given to him to make war, the word says, with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Now, if I can give you a, a third reason why I believe the church will be snatched away before the tribulation. It's interesting to me that in the book of Revelation, John uses the Greek term ekklesia, the word for the church, the called out ones. He uses it 21 times. Now, listen carefully. 20 of those times he uses it in reference to the seven churches mentioned in the first three introductory chapters of the book of Revelation. And it's always in connection with the churches on earth, never in connection with the saints in heaven. And then he uses it one more time in the epilogue when Jesus testifies to the churches to whom the prophecy is given. And he's offering words of admonition and comfort. But here's the point. Never one time does the term ecclesia appear in chapters 4 through 19. All of those periods of judgment. That discusses judgment. Now, to me, this would be a very odd omission if, in fact, the ecclesia were present upon the earth during that time. However, although no references to the ecclesia are, are found in Revelation 4 through 19, we do find, catch this, three fascinating references to a vast body of saved individuals in heaven. And each one is designated by terms that are used in the New Testament to describe the church, the ecclesia, during the church age. What are they? Well, in verses or in, in Revelation four through five, uh, we read of the 24 elders, uh, a descriptive um, or a description, I believe, of the raptured church. That would always the elders would describe the leadership of the church. A, a second uh, Mention is in Revelation 13, 6, where we discover that the Antichrist blasphemes three objects of his utter hatred. It is God, his name, and also his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. The Antichrist is blaspheming, I believe, the raptured church. And then thirdly, we read of the bride who has made herself ready for the Lamb in Revelation 19, 1 through 9. So, again, the use of the term ecclesia would reinforce my position. A fourth reason why I believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation is because of the unique chronological sequence of judgments in Revelation 6 through 19 that not only parallel Jesus' prophetic discourse in, in Matthew 24, but also Daniel's 70th week that we read about in Daniel 9. And we'll get into that in great detail someday. 
And again, remember, this is to be Daniel's 70th week is to be the template that Jesus indicates that we are to use to determine the chronological sequence of the beginning of birth pains. He describes that in Matthew 24, 15 through 16 and Mark 13, 14. And all of this of Daniel's 70th week, this template that we're to lay over the text is undeniably and distinctly Jewish. It, it, it focuses upon Israel, the Israel of the Old Testament, not the church. Now, again, although God's economy in dealing with Israel finds numerous fulfillments in the church, I won't deny that. Nevertheless, Daniel's 70th week is a distinctly Jewish context pertaining to God's covenants with Israel. And I just can't see how they can be describing anything in the church age. When Israel enters, as Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, the time of Jacob's trouble, we read that this will be a period of unprecedented oppression for Israel. And the context describes her final restoration. Just before their Messiah returns, as described in detail in Revelation 6 through 19. And again, think of this. Jesus clearly indicates in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, and Mark 13, 14, that, that Daniel's 70th week prophecy is to be the template for this chronological sequence of the beginning of birth pangs. And that these pre-kingdom judgments, therefore, I believe, are consistent with God's purposes and plan for Israel, not the church. Daniel 9:24. Here's part of the template. Here's what it says. Seventy weeks, which is really referring to weeks of years. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. You see, while the nation of Israel was set aside Temporarily, and we read about that in, in Romans 11, verses 11 through 15. The normal reading of Scripture would make it clear to me that they will once again emerge as the object of divine attention. And again, as I, as I read these prophecies, I, I, I'm struck with the Jewishness of all of it, of this coming period of time. For example, as we read in... In Revelation, we read how that God is going to supernaturally save and seal 144,000 sons of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, Revelation 7, 4 through 5. They will become a massive missionary force preaching the gospel. And in Revelation 11, we read how the temple is going to be measured. And that was always symbolic in the word of God to describe uh, ownership, the temple. This speaks of, of, of in, in that text, it speaks of the people who worship in the temple and how the Gentiles are going to tread it underfoot for three and a half years. And in Revelation eleven nineteen, there's the reappearance of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it just it, it, it doesn't match with my understanding of God's dispensation with the church. And then later in Revelation 15, there's seven angels of judgment that appear. And they come out of the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. And even the news of the last bowl judgment that, that will be emptied out comes forth from the same temple in Revelation 16, 17. The two witnesses in, in, in verse 3, which by the way, the two, two witnesses, the, the Jews always, under Jewish law, re required... Uh, two, witnesses, two witnesses to confirm a testimony. 
But these two witnesses are supernaturally granted special power to prophesy for 1260 days. And even the plagues in Revelation 11:6 are reminiscent of those enacted upon the enemies of Israel in the days of Elijah and Moses. And if that's not enough, in Revelation 12, uh, there's clearly identified the woman. And who is that? Well, the word says that it's the nation of Israel, consistent with the Israel of the Old Testament. And this woman is going to be persecuted by the beast, by the Antichrist, during this diabolical reign. And indeed, all of her persecutions, Israel's persecutions, past and present and future, have come from Satan. And he remains the chief antagonist in the prophetic record all the way to the end. And ultimately, in the final conflict, the Word of God reveals to us that the great angel Michael is the one that defeats Satan. Well, who is Michael in the Old Testament? He is the great protector of Israel. So again, I I just cannot see the church, the bride, in any of this. But back to Matthew 24. Enough of all that technical stuff, and I appreciate you bearing with me there. If the church is raptured, and I know again there's those that would differ with me on this, but if, if it is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, well, who are those saints that Jesus refers to in verse 9? Well, they are going to be those who come to Christ during the tribulation. Many will come to Christ as a result of the, of the preaching of the 144,000, the two witnesses, and so on. Back to Jesus' sign gifts now. He's telling us that during this time, right before He comes, there will be false messiahs, nations at war, natural disasters of epic proportions, persecution of tribulation saints, and fifthly, in verses 10 through 13, the defection of and betrayal by false believers. Notice what it says. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Now, folks, especially those of you who have sat under my teaching, you know that Christianity today has numerous tares amongst the wheat. Those who profess Christ, but they do not possess Him. Churches are filled with such people. Many people kind of join up with Christianity because it's kind of the cultural thing to do. Many people are just born into it. They don't know anything any different, so they're born into it and they just kind of assimilate into all of it. But they, they, many of them really don't know Christ. And for some people, it's just kind of a nice social club. It's a great place to meet nice people to meet friends, maybe find a husband or wife, network your business. I mean, that's kind of how a lot of people think. And for a lot of people, Christianity kind of has a sentimental charm, you know, all of the Christmas stuff and so on. And who knows, there may be some supernatural thing with it, as some people might think. There's some supernatural mystique about Christianity. Who knows, maybe... You can join up with it and maybe you really can get rich like a lot of these guys say that you can. Maybe you can uh, just exercise your faith in some special way and, and now all of your diseases are going to be healed. What do you have to lose? There are many people, my point is, that have entered by the wide gate of easy believism, that cheap grace. They have not come to Christ through brokenness over their sin, 
through genuine repentance, mourning over their sin, pleading for divine mercy that the Lord instantly gives, coming and denying themselves, taking up a cross, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's no genuine humility. There's no real devotion to God's glory. There's no real love for the lost. There's no real separation from the world. It's just kind of the cultural thing to do. Well, I believe these will be the type of people that will defect and betray others during the time of tribulation. It's interesting. In Matthew 13, remember the parable of the seed and the sower? Jesus talks about how that gospel seed even falls on rocky places. And in verse 20, he says, This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. Well, dear friends, I believe Jesus is describing the ones who will fall away here in Matthew 24 as well. Fall away not from salvation. We don't read that in Scripture. You have to torture biblical text to somehow see that you lose your salvation. Genuine believers never lose their salvation. They're not falling away from salvation. What they're falling away from, what they're departing from, is their phony profession. In fact, in 1 John 2.19, we read that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. You see, friends, here, even... And uh, and what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, he's warning of a time when the refining fires of, of persecution will purify the church, separating the dross from the pure gold of genuine saving faith. Historically, persecution and suffering have always been God's method of purification. In fact, the writer of Hebrews warned in Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, Lest there should be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. I know a lot of people will say, well, that's not me. I'm not, I would never fall away. Well, let me ask you to ask yourself, to what extent are you willing today to take a stand for Christ? How easy is it for you to kind of start clearing your throat and backing away and changing the subject? when it comes time to stand up for Christ around the water cooler or when you're in the hairdresser or when you're sitting across from some friends at a restaurant. Friends, if you're a coward in those simple, easy scenarios, think what a coward you would be when your very life is at stake. Well, this will be a time of unprecedented betrayal and persecution. In fact, Jesus, again, says there will be ones who will deliver up one another and hate one another. It's interesting. In Mark's gospel, we have even more detail of what he's saying there. Mark 13, 12, Jesus says, brother will deliver brother to death. Can you imagine that? And father, his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You see, friends, this will be a time of such persecution and such suffering that the only thing that matters is self-preservation, even if it means giving up your child. 
In verse 11, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 24, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Well, false prophets will undoubtedly be serving the many false messiahs that Jesus warns that will be there in that day as the father of lies feeds them his deceptive doctrines. And as Jesus says, they will mislead many. By the way, it's interesting. In Revelation 17, there is a description of the great religious system that will exist in that day. A system that will encompass a variety of counterfeit religious systems. Kind of a a, a grand, maybe if I can put it this way, a toxic soup of ecumenism. You know, the whole people of faith thing. It's like it doesn't matter what your faith is in, as long as you're just kind of spiritual and religious, then you're a person of faith. This is kind of what it will be. And it's interesting that it's described in Revelation 17:15 as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. By the way, you may recall, I've spoken this before, this, um, and I won't say much about it here other than to say that this Babylon the Great This was really spawned at the ancient Tower of Babel. We read about that in Genesis 11. When Satan first attempted to establish his kingdom upon the earth, the triune Godhead came and and dispersed the people and foiled his plan. And all of those religious systems went out all over the world. Well, once again, when Satan tries to establish his throne this last time before Jesus comes, all of those phony religious systems are going to come home to Mama. Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots. People of faith, I'm sure that they have faith in everything imaginable, but not faith in the one true God. They will hate Him. And it's fascinating in Revelation 9.21, just to give you a little bit more about this religious system in that time. One of the chief components of this final counterfeit religious system Revelation 9.21 says, is, will, will be their sorceries. Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's pharmakia, sorceries, pharmakia in Greek. We get our word pharmacy from that. And it basically denotes the ingestion of drugs. And it's interesting, isn't it? That down through history, if you look at pagan religions, you will see that they are notorious in using mind-altering hallucinogens, and, uh, hallucinogens in, in, in their worship. And given our modern addiction to so many drugs, it's very easy for me to see how this could play a major role in Satan's future religious deceptions. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13, and says, And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. But what is lawlessness? First John 3, 4, it says, Sin is lawlessness. This will be a a disregard for God's law, even man's law. We saw that in the aftermath of Katrina, didn't we? Which, as I say, will be, I mean, if you just multiply that on a global scale, that's kind of what the Word of God is, is describing, only, frankly, even worse. And Jesus says this will be increased. The term in the original language means to multiply. It's like there will be an exponential multiplication of sin, of lawlessness. And this will make most people's love, he says, grow cold. Love for Christ, for those that claim they know Christ but really don't. They're not going to want to claim Christ when everybody knows that 
it's because of Christ that all these horrible things are happening to the world. Certainly their love for their family will grow cold. Again, as I say, only self-preservation, that, that will all be the only thing that matters during that time. But verse 13, the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. You know, this is, a, this is always the glorious promise for those who persevere in the faith, isn't it? Isn't it an amazing thought? Genuine believers, again, they never apostatize. We, we, we have, we're partakers of the divine nature. We, we have an enduring faith that is empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God. What did Paul say in Philippians 1.6? He who be, began a good work in you will perfect it until when? The day of Jesus Christ. I rejoice in that. Yet... What is so precious to me, especially in light of all of these inconceivable persecutions, again, the false messiahs, the false prophets, the the sorceries, the betrayal, the worldwide wickedness of the Antichrist rule. You know what's amazing to me is to see in the midst of it all the amazing grace of a merciful God. And this is the sixth and final sign, verse 14, that of mass evangelism. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Again, the the prophecies tell us there will be 144,000 sons of Israel that will become missionaries. By the way, they estimate right now that in terms of Bible-believing, just real genuine missionaries that are out there today, it's probably in the neighborhood of 50,000. So, this is going to be much greater than that. You'll have the two witnesses that Revelation talks about. And in Revelation 14, verses 6 through 7, we even read that he's going to have an angel that he will send, an angel of evangelism. And in that text, we read that he will preach an eternal gospel to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, saying, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him and make the heaven who worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Dear friends, what a long suffering, merciful, faithful, loving God we serve. Hallelujah, what a Savior who for sinners once did die, who conquered sin from death arose and opened sinners' eyes. Hallelujah, what a Savior, with mercy He delays, ever seeking, ever pleading, O sinner, come today. Let's bow our heads together. Father, while we can never understand fully all that You have given us in Your prophetic Word, we do understand enough to know that You are a loving and a merciful God but yet You are also a holy God that will not leave sin unpunished. We praise You that You are the sovereign ruler over all things and we thank You for the purifying hope that we have knowing that indeed You could come and snatch us away at any time. Lord, may we live in light of Your return whenever it may be. And Lord, for those who do not know You as Savior, especially those that might, may be within the sound of my voice who has perhaps even come into this church today wearing some phony religious veneer. And they know deep within their heart that they really do not love You. 
Their lives do not orbit around your glory. They have really no passion for your word. They have no desire to see other people really come to Christ. They really don't have any desire to deny themselves and even take up a cross daily, even being willing to die for you. Lord, for those people, how I pray that you will break through the layers of self-deception and you will bring conviction to their heart. Lord, I pray that today will be the day that they confess you as Savior and trust in you as their Savior and begin to worship you as the Lord of their life. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.